We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Brian Hugh in Taipei. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone from Taijong by other regular commentator Donovan Smith. Again, great to be back. Tonight we'll be discussing the government this week, continuing to address questions regarding how China could be using the situation in Ukraine to push its plans for unification with Taiwan by military means. Quarantine times for arrivals could be further cut beginning next month, but there's talk that quarantine won't be lifted completely before the end of this year. And the visit to Taiwan by former US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo resulted in some controversy. But we'll begin with Russia on Monday of this week, putting Taiwan on a list of foreign countries it deems to be unfriendly. Taiwan is among 48 countries and territories deemed to be unfriendly towards Moscow for either imposing or joining international sanctions against Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Other unfriendly countries include the predictable suspects, those being the United States, the UK, EU member states, Australia and Canada, but it also includes Andorra, San Marino, Singapore, South Korea and Micronesia. Foreign Minister Joseph Wu is saying that Taiwan's representative office in Moscow is continuing to operate normally and the unfriendly listing has so far not having any effect on bilateral relations. Now, according to the foreign minister, Taiwan's investment and trade with Russia, well, they're not very significant. And he says the unfriendly listing is not expected to have any major impact on Taiwan. Figures show that bilateral trade between Taiwan and Russia reached 6.31 billion US dollars last year and exports to Russia accounted for only 0.76% of the island's total outbound sales. However, despite the foreign minister's moves to allay concerns about Taiwan-Russia trade, Transport Minister Wang Guotsai this week warned that fuel prices will continue to rise due to the war in Ukraine. And speaking at a legislative hearing on Tuesday, Wang told lawmakers that bus companies are set to receive subsidies to prevent any increases in fare prices. So we've got sort of mixed messages there. Concerns, Brian, about the price of fuel, but the foreign minister saying, don't worry too much about it. Yeah, so I think uh, with this, it's important to sort out what targets Taiwan specifically or will affect Taiwan in particular versus global measures, things that affect all countries around the world. And so one will see inflation, uh, rises in gas prices, etc. That's not particular to Taiwan. However, the concern then is regarding trade between Taiwan and Russia, and that is not actually, as you mentioned, uh, too high, and so the effects should be minimal. Though Russia is, for example, the ninth largest market for uh, machine parts for Taiwan. Um, there are also other factors at play, for example, particularly regarding semiconductor manufacturing. Uh, UK and, and Russia provide a lot of the gases and metals used for semiconductor manufacturing. Uh, for example, 50% of neon or 40% of krypton. And so this could affect Taiwan going forward. Uh, but then in that sense, this will still be a global disruption. Uh, I think it's interesting then that despite the DPP leading heavily into Ukraine, for example, Ukraine solidarity protests have no less than DPP Deputy Secretary General Ling Feifan participating. The relations in terms of the uh, Moscow representative office still continue normally, including assisting the evacuation of Taiwanese that are in Ukraine. And so there's been attempts to reassure on that front. Yeah, um, I think I think Brian's kind of hit the main points there. Um, the um but there's a, a, what a lot of people I think are missing, which I haven't seen referred to as much, is that there's a lot of indirect trade that goes into Russia, and but it's a little bit hard to quantify that. So, for example, a lot of there's very little direct. Uh, for example, with the chip industry, there's very little exported to Russia. <clears throat> so uh, that looks like it's a you know the, the, at first flush that looks quite minimal. But then there's a lot of products that include as components. 
uh, chips from Taiwan and, and other elements, which are assembled into products that then go into Russia, and how that will be affected will be interesting to see. Now, China is where a lot of these things are assembled, and uh, so that in trade there isn't affected. So what the indirect impacts outside of, as Brian noted, the global elements, the specific and indirect uh, the indirect supply chains that go through countries like Vietnam and China, how will they be impacted? And it looks like probably not a whole lot, but there will be some blowback, it looks like, from certain elements, for example, possibly Apple. And of course, Brian Donovan there raised the point that Taiwan might say it's, it's going to set sanctions, it's going to follow the US and sanction Russia on certain components. But Donovan made a point of some of these components, some of these parts, components are sent to China for final manufacturing and then sent to Russia. Do you think this could cause problems with Taiwan joining a US-led sanctions against Russia? Yeah, so I think it's a question there because I think sanctions for Taiwan, Taiwan is unlikely to lead with its own sanctions. It would be following the lead of other countries. And I think what would be interesting in that case is that Taiwan would seek to use this, joining in a uh, sanctions from other countries to strengthen relations with them, to signal alignment with the U.S. and other countries, for example. And the U.S., in response to the Ukraine crisis, talked to allies in, in East Asia regarding uh, semiconductor access for Russia because Russia is tech-starved, and so this would be another way of pressuring Russia. And so I think... Taiwan would align with the U.S. and its allies in this kind of broader pattern, but it would not lead with sanctions. The question is if Taiwan would be targeted by, for example, uh, say China or Russia or whoever, as a way to signal the U.S. And I think that's unlikely, but it's still within the range of possibility. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot to add to this because we really can't quantify a lot of this stuff. Um, we'd have to break down all these different companies that 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 re-export Taiwan components from various countries into Russia, because Russia doesn't really actually manufacture a whole lot. It's, it's primarily a commodity-based economy. So we really don't know how much of this is going to be an impact, not only now with the sanctions that they are uh, as they stand uh, worldwide, uh, and you know whether or not China will in some ways get involved or not, because a lot of those exporting companies still need to deal in dollars, and they're still trying to figure out uh, on the Chinese side what companies can continue to operate normally with Russia and which ones can't. And then a lot of private companies are kind of you know on the fence at this point in China, from from what I gather, in that they need access to U.S. dollars, so they don't want to they they don't want to bust the sanctions. But not all Russian banks, for example, have been kicked out of the SWIFT system. So I think there's still, at this point, a lot of trying to figure out what is impacted and what isn't, and we're not going to really know yet for a little while. Of course, Brian, wheat is being impacted. Of course, Russia and Ukraine they produce a lot of the world's wheat. And of course, Taiwan, people eat noodles in Taiwan, and <laughs> Taiwan actually imports flour. That's right. And so that's another effect. Um, there's wheat, I think also natural gas, but the uh, government has reassured this is around 10%, so it should not be significant. Uh, but there's been a kind of a lot of push for self-reliance, I think, by countries uh, regarding natural gas supplies. So building a liquefied natural gas terminal that's ready in the works. And so much as Western European countries are thinking about this to avoid this, this uh, shortfall or this choke point in the future, Taiwan may also consider this, I think. And Donovan, do you see a run on noodles in the coming months? You know, I, I really don't, because I suspect what's going to end up happening is, unlike, for example, natural gas and oil, which need massive new pipelines to be built, wheat can be relatively easily shipped. The, the main problem there is Ukraine, because will, will they be able to harvest the crops? I mean, it's traditionally billed as the breadbasket of Europe. But that's going to impact, I think, Europe more than Taiwan. 
Taiwan can get, uh, easily can get large amounts of wheat out of the United States and Canada, which produce pretty big uh, surpluses. Um, so I think really where Taiwan is positioned in the world economy, because now because it is a global commodity market, that means prices will go up. But I don't think that Taiwan's going to have a supply problem, rather a price problem on wheat. As far as natural gas is concerned, uh, t- technically, uh, Russia was this, the third largest supplier of both coal and natural gas to Taiwan, but those were pretty low percentages. Uh, much higher percentages were coming out of uh, other countries. And the natural gas uh, contract was, had already been planned to expire this month, and, and it, it looked like it wasn't planned to be renewed anyway. So, again, Taiwan's going to be impacted with uh, international inflation in the prices of these commodities, but it doesn't look like at this point that supply is going to be the issue, at this point anyway. No, uh, wheat, by the way, what I was getting to earlier is that I think what's going to happen with wheat is that you're going to have a situation where that can be shipped into uh, alternate countries. In other words, the Russian wheat that might go to Taiwan or to Europe will be re-diverted into countries like Iran, North Korea, and China, because that can be relatively easily shipped. Uh, Russia will have a big problem if Europe cuts off natural gas and oil, which they can't at this point, but they're looking to phase it down like the UK is to the end of the year. Um, So those are harder to divert from the Russian side because they need to build big pipelines. So I think we're going to see a lot more shocks on the energy side where Russia is going to have much more trouble re-diverting those exports to friendlier markets. But wheat, I think they can turn around and just put those on trains, you know, the Trans-Siberian, and ship that right into China. And in related news this week, the government was continuing to address questions regarding how China could be using the situation in Ukraine to push its plans for unification by military means. Now, Defence Minister Cho Guo-chung, Foreign Minister Joseph Wu and National Security Bureau Director General Chen Ming-tong all attended a hearing of the Legislative Foreign Affairs and National Defence Committee on Thursday of this week. That meeting came after it was reported that a Chinese Y-8 maritime patrol aircraft crashed in the South China Sea earlier this month and China then launched a and rescue operation under the guise of a training exercise. And speaking at the legislative hearing, the Defence Minister said that cross-strait conflict will result in what he described as a miserable victory, citing the high cost of such a military operation. He also stressed that while there are similarities between the situation in Ukraine and Taiwan, he went on to say that there are also significant differences, saying that Taiwan has a geographic advantage, as the Taiwan Strait poses a major barrier to any invasion. The Foreign Minister, meanwhile, told lawmakers that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has drawn global attention to Taiwan's situation and he believes Beijing is aware of that and is still seeking to gauge how other countries would respond to its invasion of Taiwan. While the NSB Director General said China is taking advantage of the conflict in Ukraine by stepping up its political and economic pressure on Taiwan and also seeking to spread more disinformation in an attempt to divide public opinion here. Brian. That's right. And so I think China is trying to take advantage of the Ukraine conflict where it can for its own projects on Taiwan. But at the same time, there's a debate about how much of this was in coordination between China and Russia, for example. And one of the arguments is that it was not actually well coordinated, that Putin, uh, he perhaps did see, see advance notice, however, that just in many ways, it was still a move that China found unwelcome, that this adds a lot of extraneous factors that China has to deal with. 
uh, China, for example, signed on to supporting the Minsk Agreement shortly before Russia announced that it would be voiding that and not following that anymore. I think it also raises awkward questions because if China just aligns with Russia, this creates concerns about a quote-unquote new Cold War. Uh, this heightens geopolitical tensions at a time in which China may not necessarily want that. Uh, it's still in some ways, despite criticism of the uh, mass attention of Uyghurs and other human rights abuses or the South China Seas, etc., uh, still wants to be seen as a responsible actor in many ways. And so then I think particularly in Taiwan, there's the uh, people are quick to draw analogy between Ukraine and Taiwan in terms of facing invasion threats from a larger country that claims that you are the same culture, language, etc. And so do not deserve to be a country. However, uh, then I think experts often point to the differences in terms of context, in terms of the differences of uh, staging a military invasion, the economic impact, the relation with the U.S., etc. Yeah, I mean, as far as invasion goes, I, I, I looking at this... I think several things need to be kept in mind first and foremost is that we don't know what's going on in, in Xi Jinping's head, um, but I don't see the overall strategy of whatever's going on in the, the planning as far as what to do with Taiwan or how they want to approach a potential invasion of Taiwan. I don't see the overall strategy being changed. I, I suspect they, they may be refining their tactical planning because fundamentally the Chinese state, the, the party state is focused on domestic issues first and foremost. So where they look at, as Brian just noted there, if we're, you know they're looking at they may not want to be cut off from the global supply chains uh, and the international system, I don't think that it's because they care too much about Russia one way or the other or anything else. They are worried about economic shocks to their domestic market, which, for example, they'd be worried about another Tiananmen, which was partly in response to uh, out-of-control inflation. So I, I think that the primary concerns going on on the Chinese side are domestic rather than external. External will have some influence or impact, but they won't change, I think, the broad outlines of whatever strategy they're looking at. Rather, it, they'll change tactically in response. And Brian, what about the disinformation campaigns coming out of China using the Ukraine conflict as a backdrop? Yeah, so I think it's interesting too, because particularly Ukraine, if uh, Ukraine is seen as being able to fight off Russia, and Ukraine, something it's very good at is actually managing uh, how it's perceived currently internationally. Uh, if you look at just what you see on social media, it may not be the most accurate picture, but it looks like just regular farmers and regular people are successfully fighting off the Russian army. Uh, and so this kind of narrative of small country fighting off a bigger country, that is a little inconvenient for China in some ways, because then Taiwan may be perceived as being able to manage. Uh, so then I think China wants to create this uh, narrative of inevitability that comparisons cannot be drawn in that respect, uh, and that in terms of Taiwan, you cannot comp compare this to Ukraine in terms of the, the resistance. I think the other attempt to do with disinformation is to encourage distrust of the U.S. and of Western powers, saying, for example, that, well, look at the U.S. and the European Union. They will only provide weapons. They won't actually intercede themselves. And so Taiwan cannot count on the U.S. and European Union or other potential countries coming to its aid. It will instead only provide weapons at best. And so I think this... Uh, is the narrative then that China will try to sell. However, I do think, generally speaking, there is already this push towards self-reliance in Taiwan, this concern that perhaps Taiwan might be in it on its own. And so I do think that that dovetails in a way, but maybe not necessarily in the way that, that China wants to sell this narrative. Yeah, I don't see at this point that, that China's narrative is making much inroads in Taiwan outside of at certain fringes, which tend to always <laughs> be susceptible to that. 
Um, <clears throat> what I really do think is very interesting is the way that the t- local media has been following the international Western media on this issue uh, far more closely, and there's been a lot of interest and a lot of push here, as Brian noted, for self-sufficiency, but there's also been a lot of interest, uh, a, a sharp uptick in interest in things like the res- reservist system. Uh, I saw that there was a, a poll the other day that uh, the vast majority, something like 78% or something like that, uh, support extending conscription to at least one year uh, up from four months now. Uh, for better training. Uh, There's been a lot of pressure. Uh, I saw in the legislature they just passed a motion. Uh, Initially, they wanted uh, training for reservists on anti-aircraft missiles. The the military said, let's change the wording a little bit, to anti-aircraft training, uh, which would include that and potentially some other tactics as well. And so there's been this very, very sharp sense of um, interest and concern on the part of the uh, the press here, which is filtered out into the public, and I think this kind of created a feedback mechanism. So I think that we're seeing, I think the impact of the war on Ukraine has been to heighten a sense of we can do more on the part of the public here in Taiwan. And I really don't see Chinese propaganda, to get back to the original question, as really having any, putting in any dent on this. If anything, right now, I think that Taiwan is becoming more sensitive to what is Chinese propaganda and what isn't. And so I think that, I I don't see that China's uh, propaganda is going to have very much impact here at all. Um, But conversely, I think that Taiwan is really sharpening its focus and sharpening its interest on how it can defend itself uh, and how the public itself can get involved. Now, this is a very important psychological shift because before the Taiwanese public was a lot more focused on how will the military and how will the U.S. help us. And, you know, the U.S. will send in the cavalry and your average person really, these are all larger issues way above and beyond their pay grade, right? Uh, I think what what we're seeing a lot more, and there's been a lot of interest in self-defense groups, self-defense training, uh, preparation training. Uh, for example, Enoch Wu's group has just been totally oversubscribed for their for their training sessions. Um, and I think that this is this is an important shift because once you get the public involved, and your average person starts giving thought to what would I do and how could I help in this kind of a situation, you start to see a country that might just start mobilizing a little bit more. And for years, a lot of people have been saying that Taiwan should be following models closer to, say, Israel um, that are right on, you know, they have hostile neighbors and the whole of the public is involved. Another element in that same survey said that 58% uh, now think that women should be conscripted as well, uh, for example. So I think that now a lot of the things that the government has been reluctant to do, like increasing the conscription and and uh, the reservist system, do a lot more reserve. I mean, they, they just don't have the capacity to handle a lot more now. But the government now is in a position that, well, they can strike while it's hot, and change the laws to make the conscription longer if they want to, and they now have the option to rapidly expand 
the capacity to do considerable more reservist training. So I think that right now is a very interesting time. It'll be very interesting to see if the Thai administration takes advantage of this moment for a much broader sense of mobilization for a potential invasion, which up to this point, the Thai administration has been very cautious and reluctant on doing because of the potential political costs. Yeah, that's right. And so I think this is a very interesting moment because this is the most significant sea change coming out of the Ukraine crisis. A lot of the existing trends, I think, will be accelerated by uh, the Ukraine crisis. For example, just China would focus on decapitation strikes, uh, a quick war in the beginning to overcome having to this protracted warfare, as you see now in Ukraine. That was already a tendency. Uh, Taiwan will double down on asymmetric warfare in terms of being able to fight down a larger enemy because that was already in place. Uh, Ukraine adopted the strategy to great success, etc. But what is new is this debate or discussion regarding conscription and the reserves. Uh, increasing the length of reserves, it's actually not that long so far of what has been discussed. I think the more significant development is in terms of conscription so the MPP has come out in support of increasing conscription, for example. You have surprising political actors such as Fuquency of the KMT attacking the Thai administration for not doing this. Now, I think it's a different question entirely because of the fact that when you do increase conscription, there will be some people that are not too happy with this. A polling shows that young people in particular are not particularly interested in being part of China, do not identify with China, however, are not very interested in being part of the army as well. And so selling this discourse or trying to push for this is something the Thai administration will have to do going forward. Uh, and this would satisfy what some of the long-standing demands that the U.S. has had of Taiwan, of saying Taiwan does not spend enough on its own defense, that it does not take its defense seriously enough in order to have conscription. I mean, you have Fukuyama saying this, for example, Francis Fukuyama, the political scientist, uh, saying this of Taiwan recently. Uh, general commentary often revolves around this point. And so this would be a strong signal. But will the DPP have the nerve to kind of double down on this idea and push it through? That's a different question, I think. And Brian, how do you think it could do that without coming over? Of course, we're talking about the DPP here. They obviously don't want to come over too militaristic when they do this. Mm, that's right. And so that's another challenge. Uh, and so framing it as responsive and just a defensive measure uh, or minimizing the kind of threat profile of this is another element. For example, Taiwan is increasing production of missiles at the same time. Uh, and so that's another point that doesn't got, get played up, for example. Uh, I think the DPP will try to frame it as bipartisan in some ways. For example, if there are some pan blue legislators that say, well, you do need this, actually. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, I mean, there's a lot of threads to pull on here. Um, as Brian noted the asymmetric warfare, and this is something that the U.S. has been pushing Taiwan to do more of. I think the war in Ukraine has kind of illustrated the American point on this one. Whereas Taiwan's military has been kind of going back and forth on asymmetric warfare, uh, President Tsai herself has been talking a lot about it. But in practice, uh, a lot of the analysis I've seen is that Taiwan's military is still focused on big-ticket items. The defense of that big-ticket item one is that it integrates Taiwan more with the, their allies, even the United States and uh, other countries, um, but I think that the war in Ukraine has kind of underscored the point on asymmetric warfare. So I think there's going to be a lot more of a push on that. Something that, that's an interesting point, um, I'm trying to remember his name off the top of my head, but I was, at a, uh, econo- I was a panelist on a econo- uh, an academic uh, conference in um, the UK, and one of the other panelists, a German uh, fellow, he was pointing out, uh, and this was early in the pandemic, he was pointing out that a lot of the mobilization efforts done by the CCC 
and getting the populace to comply with a series of different regulations and rules uh, was, in many senses, a preparation for a whole of society mobilization uh, for something like an invasion, uh, which I thought was a very interesting point. So, you know, I think people have been kind of already mobilized to a certain degree in the last couple of years over the pandemic, and this may bleed into more of this kind of thing uh, culturally as a society, and some of this led by the government, and some of it may be uh, led from the ground up, which is a very interesting development. We'll kind of have to see whether that sense or that enthusiasm on the part of the public carries forward. It could taper off if the war ends quickly over there or goes badly. Or if the war goes on, but there's all these images of heroic Ukrainians, it could actually increase. Uh, And of course, a lot of it will depend on the Chinese side and just how bellicose they are. So I think there's uh, there's a lot of waiting and seeing here. But I do think that a fundamental sea change has happened, but how deep and how broad it will extend from this point, I think is really the op- uh, th- those are the really open questions. And we have to take a short break now, but we'll return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and Health Minister Chen Shih-jong on Monday announced that the Central Epidemic Command Centre could cut quarantine times for arrivals to seven days from the current ten days beginning next month. Now, according to Chen, the government is prepared to shorten the quarantine period provided that the coronavirus situation here in Taiwan remains stable and under control. Chen says other factors that will be taken into consideration are whether people adhere to quarantine regulations, the vaccination rate of seniors and the international pandemic situation. The statement comes after the government on Monday of this week began allowing non-resident business travellers to apply to enter the country. However, the health minister is warning that the government is unlikely to cancel quarantine requirements for arrivals before the end of this year, unless he says there are new types of medicine targeting the coronavirus. Now, the health minister's comments come as the National Taiwan University College of Public Health is calling on the government to reopen Taiwan's borders in three phases beginning in May. Now, according to NTU professor Tony Chen, Phase one will allow people who are fully vaccinated against the coronavirus from countries with high levels of herd immunity to enter without having to quarantine. Chen says the United States and the European Union should be considered to have high levels of herd immunity, Latin American countries to have medium levels, and African countries and some Asian countries to have low levels. Now, the NTU professor is describing Taiwan's herd immunity as being unique compared with many other countries because it's significantly lower. But he says that the public still has a high level of herd immunity from vaccinations. And the NTU professor also says that Taiwan is capable of reopening its borders as long as there is no surge in imported cases that could overwhelm the island's health system. So, Brian, obviously, they're gradually, gradually, gradually lowering the quarantine regulations for arrivals and the time you have to spend in quarantine. But, of course, the health minister is saying it's unlikely to be completely scrapped 
by the end of this year. Mm. Yeah, and so I think Taiwan wants to avoid the policy of just letting it COVID rip, uh, in other words, and just letting it spread to society the ways that, let's say, Australia has. Uh, even with high rates of vaccination, that is the case. There have been high amounts of hospitalizations, etc. And so Taiwan is trying to avoid that scenario. Taiwan is also keeping its eye, I think, on Hong Kong, in which now we have the most COVID case in the world, which previously Hong Kong adhered to COVID zero, was able to keep things under control, and now the situation is completely unstable and the hospital system is overwhelmed and there's just thousands, tens of thousands of cases per day. And so the question then now is how to reintegrate and reopen Taiwan gradually to the world, how also to introduce coexisting with COVID. Uh, it's interesting that this has been talked about since the beginning of the pandemic, effectively, how to coexist with COVID. But now we're finally seeing these policies put into place, effectively how to stick the landing after all these years. And so I think now there's concern about the impacts on the global economy, how other countries are opening up, uh, which countries to uh, open up to faster, uh, what demographics to let in. And there's likely to be a lot of political contention about these issues, but I think this will be seen then going forward. Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm not an epidemiologist. Um, the, uh, but I do think that Chen saying that they would not lift uh, quarantines completely by the end of the year, he might, it, he might have been better served to leave a little bit of strategic ambiguity on that. Although he did leave himself a little bit of wiggle room, he probably could have left with a little bit more. But on the other hand, it, it, at least there's some clarity on what the government will be doing going forward, which has been one of the big problems so far is it's been really hard to make any plans so by saying that there will be some form of quarantine through the end of the year at least people can plan for that um and obviously seven days is is more easier to manage than the two weeks previously um but you know he could have left himself i think a little bit more wiggle room and strategic ambiguity for later this year now, the, the interesting thing is, Brian kind of touched on this, uh, that this is going to be politically contentious. It's important to remember this is, this is an election year, and I think that this could potentially be a huge flashpoint, um, particularly in the county commissioner and mayoral races. And, and also ideologically between parties, because this is one of those sticks I think that the opposition is going to pick up and use as a cudgel against the Thai administration as the election moves on. It also may be a good reason why the DPP might not want to run Chen Shih-jong uh, as their mayoral candidate in Taipei. Now, he's been kind of coy as to whether he will or he won't, and saying things like, well, you know, I have to deal with the, you know, I have to deal with the pandemic now. And, uh, but he, ha he keeps not quite ruling it out. Um, and uh, something, just as a side note, uh, a lot of people view him as a technocrat, but the reality is he's actually a dentist who's been involved in DPP politics for a long time. He's actually a political appointee. Um, and this is partly his reward for bringing in you know, back in the Chen administration, bringing in hundreds of dentists into the TPP and, and so on. Um, he was also one of their party list candidates back in, I believe it was 2004, on the same ticket as Tsai Ing-wen, who made it in, and he was too far down the list to actually uh, be part of it. But anyway, um, so, yeah, I don't think this is, he would be a good candidate because he'd be too much of a lightning rod for the DPP Strategically, I think he would just be too contentious for them to run in Taipei, which leaves, of course, two other potential candidates right now. Um, 
so yeah, I think this is going to play out a lot in the polls and in public opinion. It's going to become more contentious and more of an election issue going forward. And of course, it could be a very tricky election issue, Brian, because obviously the opposition say open up Taiwan. Suddenly, as soon as an opposition lawmaker wannabe or city councillor wannabe says that, suddenly the, the Centre for Epidemic Prevention turns around and says, oh, we had 150 imported cases this week. And there goes the platform for saying Taiwan should open up. Yeah, I think the uh, particularly the Pan Blue camp has had inconsistent messaging on this front. Uh, for example, when things were heated up during the pandemic, it would accuse the DPP of not doing enough, of being not careful enough, uh, declining, for example, to downgrade the alert levels when the CCC said it was okay to do so, particularly from Koenja and Hoyoi, um, the Pan Blue camp. Uh, however, then there are periods actually earlier on when COVID was stable in which the KMT was attacking the DPP, claiming that its measures to contain COVID had been too much that Chen Zhizhong should be replaced with someone else because his measures had hurt the economy. And so I think there is this challenge. And I do think that basically it will follow the same pattern. Whatever the DPP says, there will be some attempt to criticize it as the wrong approach to take. Uh, but this not, might not play out well with the public. I do think the public is a little bit tired of just these attacks on anything the DPP rolls out. And so I think in terms of refining this policy, that's very hard to do. There's very hard to have any common ground for discussion. Um, but then in terms of uh, uh, the future prospects of Chen Shijong, that is quite interesting. I mean, polling shows that he's doing better than Jiang Wan'an, uh, Wayne Chang of the uh, KMT, uh, in terms of polling for Taipei mayor. However, there's quite a lot that depends on what happens with COVID-19 going forward. That's his political accomplishment. His uh, reputation is very much tied to that. And he is a, a lightning rod issue between the Pan Blue and the Pan Green camp. Uh, you might not be the best candidate to run in Pan Blue Taipei because oftentimes whether you approve of Chen Shijong or disapprove of him, that's being used as a way to measure approval ratings or perceptions of the Tsai administration writ large. And I think that that's quite an interesting phenomenon to watch. And Donna, I mean, do you think the government should be even considering running Chen and possibly facing allegations that you're using the pandemic for your own political purposes? Well, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't think he's the best candidate. Um, and Brian sort of touched on the polls there. The polls are actually interesting because there's a bit of a divergence between who you vote for and, who, and your personal support level. Um, people in Taipei, their personal support of him as a person is seems to be higher uh, than their intent to vote for him. Where Jiang Wanan or Wayne Wayne Jiang uh, comes, you know, comes uh, is actually polling higher. So that's a very interesting interesting dynamic. It, you know, in other words, they they like and support him, but they may not vote for him regardless. Um, so, and because he is so contentious, I don't see him as the best candidate. Um, interestingly, the two other candidates, you've got Lin Jialong uh, as a potential candidate that a lot of people are talking up, uh, our former Taichung mayor. But the other one is Chen Jinren, the, um, the former vice president, who is actually a Johns Hopkins trained <laughs> epidemiologist. But he's not a lightning rod because he wasn't, at least publicly, associated with Taiwan's policies on this issue. So he's an expert in a pandemic specifically and with a good reputation and he his support role, uh, his support in the polls is a little bit higher in most of the polls that I've seen as is a little bit higher than Chen Shidong Jong's not by a huge amount but by you know, 1 to 2 percentage points. And although I saw one where he was a little bit lower, but he might be an interesting candidate. 
um, because he is not only an expert, but he's considered very modest, low-key, but also something of a heavyweight because he was the vice president before. So I think he's a very interesting potential candidate to watch, but he is kind of old, and he doesn't appear to have much ambition. But for some reason, a couple of months ago, President Tsai herself went out of her way to tr- to, uh, to make sure that he joined the DPP, which he hadn't done before. So there's something going on there. I don't, you know, so there's a lot of suspicions, a lot of speculation that she ushered him into the party for either a run for something this year or potentially for a cabinet position uh, going forward or something of that nature. I mean, nobody really knows at this point, and of course, he's being kind of coy. So that, this, th- it, that'll be interesting to watch, see how it plays out. And moving on now, on a much-publicised trip to Taiwan last week by former US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has led to, well, controversy. Controversy was sparked by a report in the United Daily News that said Pompeo was visiting Taiwan in order to basically solicit funds for his Anarok Global Partners Group, a fund to which Pompeo is a senior partner. Now, there was also... A press conference. But Brian, of course, it wasn't really a press conference because it lasted 30 minutes, but no one could answer any questions. Press weren't allowed to actually ask Pompeo direct questions. <laughs> and then there was allegations that why did the Prospect Foundation, which is a government-affiliated think tank, pay Pompeo 150000 US dollars to give a speech? Yeah, that's right. And so it's become a uh, controversy, particularly between the pan-blue and the pan-green camp. Uh, There's often the allegation from the pan-blue camp in the past that the Trump administration was only interested in Taiwan because of its own investments in Taiwan, uh, business ties, etc. And so this is for personal interest rather than interest in Taiwan's geopolitical circumstances or the future of democracy in Taiwan, etc. But then I think particularly... What is a little awkward for the Tsai administration is that it really did roll out the red carpet for Pompeo. Taipei 101 lit up with a message of welcome. And this was not actually the case with the defense delegation of former defense officials from the Biden administration that also arrived that week. That was quickly announced in response to Ukraine. That was also deliberately bipartisan in nature. Uh, But there was not this kind of rolling out the red carpet the way Pompeo did. I think what is quite interesting, too, is Pompeo seemed to follow the script of the Tsai administration in saying that Taiwan is already independent by the name of the ROC. Uh, and so there's a question then, was there a coordination? Was Tsai ventriloquizing Pompeo in some sense uh, to try to get this out there? It does seem like a way to pressure the Biden administration uh, in terms of voicing this demand through Pompeo to have a shift in stances towards perhaps what is more amenable to Tsai. Or it could be just a way to hedge bets in case it is Pompeo or someone else from the Trumpist wing of the Republican Party that becomes the next president. And then we don't see a second Biden term. And of course, Brian, the press conference, no one could actually ask him any questions directly. That's right. And so that outraged people. But I think uh, particularly sometimes there's a difference between the way Taiwanese press thinks they can do, uh, Taiwan's media practices uh, can be carried out and what international media expects. Because I think the press is, is uh, as the fourth estate, should have a place to criticize and question and et cetera. But then this just really does not play out well, particularly when you do have someone with the optics of Pompeo. And I sometimes wonder if government officials are not cognizant enough of that. And so this is another qu- question raised of the visit. Do uh, time machine officials realize how Pompeo is perceived internationally or how other members of the Trump administration are perceived. Cozying up to him does not actually reflect well on Taiwan in many ways. Um, I think that a lot of the commentary in English has kind of missed the point. Um, the really the I mean, Brian's talked about some of the controversies which obviously uh, exist. 
Um, but look at this from the perspective of the Thai administration and as chair of the DPP. And the messaging that she wants as both the president of the country and as the chair of the DPP to communicate. And he basically filled his role for her purposes brilliantly. Um, and uh, for that, presumably, that's why she conferred upon him the Order of Brilliant Star with Special Grand Cordon. Now, she cited uh, that he, she said that he facilitated multiple breakthroughs and bilateral ties, um, including lifting restrictions on contact between officials on both sides and normalizing arms sales. I don't believe that she referenced it, but he also came out before and said that Taiwan has not been a part of China. So viewed from the perspective of the DPP and the Thai administration, all of these things were big breakthroughs that really helped Taiwan. So as far as the international um, press and the local press that it, that it generated, it I think quite effectively served the purposes that she wanted to accomplish. So, Brian, it was it was a Broadway production, one could argue. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was staged, obviously, for uh, theatrical purposes in in many ways. Um, I think the question then, particularly, is that does it open the door to future Trump administration officials or people with political careers coming out of the Trump administration coming to Taiwan and hoping for a similar red carpet treatment? And that's a question for me going forward because I think particularly uh, there are a lot of people in the Trump administration with political ambitions, and if that's the case, and this red carpet is rolled out, that actually is a little inconvenient for relations with the Biden administration. And so I think particularly for Taiwan, how to be bipartisan here is maybe the challenge. And so there has been already the controversies regarding all Republican delegations, primarily consisting of hawks on the China issue to Taiwan, and that has to be balanced out with bipartisan delegations. And so I think that that is the challenge, actually. I think that uh, this is not something that will play out in terms of domestic politics, but I think in terms of international messaging, that might not be the focus in that sense. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And it was great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.